Good morning. You can come and find your seats, please. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. A reading from God's Word, Nehemiah chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioani, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehoanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Azar. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> well, this morning we will be covering a little over two chapters, Nehemiah 11, 12, and 13, so the first, just the first three verses of chapter 13. What we see in Nehemiah 11, which we haven't read, we didn't read there, but what we see in Nehemiah 11 is the repopulation of Jerusalem, where lots are cast and various families volunteer to leave their homes uh, outside the city and come into the city to settle it. Nehemiah 12 is what we just read, and that describes the formal celebratory dedication of the wall surrounding Jerusalem. 
in Nehemiah 13, 1 through 3, we have the reading of the law and the exclusion of foreigners from the holy city. You can think of this whole section, 11, 12, and the first three verses of 13, uh, in three parts. The worshipers are brought into the city, worship occurs, and idolaters are excluded. Uh, That actually would have been a great outline, uh, but that's not the outline you're going to get today. (laughs) Um, Rather than start at the beginning of our text, we're not going to start with chapter 11, verse 1, uh, and march our way through, we actually are going to start at the climax of the chapter, of the section, Nehemiah 12, the part that we just read, and then see how we got to that wonderful place. Some of you engineers probably have memories of being a kid and wanting to understand how things work, and you take apart maybe a lawnmower engine or a clock or a radio, and then you see how it works and you put it back together again. Well, that's sort of what we are going to do this morning. We are going to take apart an entire city. We are going to take apart Jerusalem and see how they got to that wonderful place that we just heard from chapter 12. In sort of our study of taking apart the city, we're also going to be looking at, at three of the minor prophets that were, uh, that were around during this time. So Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi, which are the very ends of your New Testament, would have been prophetic voices during these generations. So we're going to be kind of drawing from some of them as well. But in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah this fall, we have seen several dramatic worship scenes. This isn't the first one we've seen. In Ezra 3, there was one. In Ezra 6 and in Nehemiah 8, the people of God were assembled, like we are. The word of God was read, as it just was, and the people responded with confession and praise. Those worship services, the ones in Ezra and Nehemiah, themselves were modeled on the great worship assemblies that we see under Moses, like in Exodus 24, or with Joshua in Joshua 8, or with David, or with Solomon. There's all these modelings of these similar worship services going on. In Nehemiah 12, though, what we just read, a different kind of worship service occurs. Here we see worship break out from the four walls of the temple, and the song of the people envelop and permeate the entirety of Jerusalem, turning a city of stone into a city of song. The book of Nehemiah begins with this description. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Our text this morning shows the great reversal of the situation. What had once been a heap of ruins is rebuilt and Jerusalem is called here for the first time the holy city. It's a glorious moment. Like water overrunning a cup, the place of worship and the thanksgiving of its people has overrun the temple and is pouring down its steps, running and filling every corner of the city. Two choirs are formed. We just heard this, but it was kind of confusing with the name, so let's get it straight in our head. Two choirs are formed and are stationed at opposite ends of the city, one up here around 10 o'clock on a clock and one down here about 6 o'clock, each one singing praises and thanksgiving to God. The choirs are not made up of just the professionals. The choirs consist of Yes, the priests and the, and the temple servants, but also the men, the women, the children. And the two choirs march around, and then they meet each other right at the narrowest part of the city, between which is the temple. And both choirs are singing to one another across the roof of the temple. And the sound of their song, we are told, was heard far away. 
At Jericho, they had marched around a city to annihilate it. Here, they marched around a city to consecrate it. Perhaps these words from the prophet Isaiah were on their lips that day. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Violence shall no more be heard in our land, devastation or destruction within our borders. We shall call our walls salvation and our gates praise. On your walls, O Jerusalem, we have set up watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. And perhaps they even got the idea of walking around the city by reading Psalm 48. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. In a sense, what we see here is the people of God reaching toward the promise of Zion out of the ruins of Jerusalem. Well, what do I mean by that? Aren't Zion and Jerusalem the same thing? Well, yes and no. We don't have to get into all of the exact ways in which that's true. But in the most literal sense, Zion was this internal citadel within the city of Jerusalem. And when David was in his ascendancy, had not yet become king, he and his men basically go in and they start by taking Zion. And that became sort of David's headquarters. And then from, from without that, then of course Jerusalem became conquered from the Jebusites. Um, but Zion in that sort of very literal brick and mortar place in Jerusalem is only mentioned on two separate occasions in the Bible in that sense. Zion is something else, this combination of the place Jerusalem and the hope for the future as a kind of true myth or a spiritual reality, a future hope, but also a present condition, that sense of Zion is everywhere in our Bibles. 41 times in the Psalms it's mentioned, 82 times in the major prophets, 32 times in the minor prophets, seven times in the New Testament. The world began as a garden, but it ends as a city. It ends with Zion. And they're getting a taste of it here. In Nehemiah 12, we see Zion breaking through into the physical place of Jerusalem. God's people groping out of the rubble of exile toward the promised hope of that perfect city. Isaiah and Jeremiah had prophesied earlier that Zion was coming, that the city of song would one day be established. And here it was. It was happening. Nehemiah 12 shows us the people of God reach out from their historical situation and grab hold of the prophetic promise with everything they had. As glorious as this moment was, however, a shadow remained over the city. On the day of dedication, I doubt that all the rubble had been cleared away. I doubt the mortar had completely dried. I know for certain that sin and corruption still remain in the people. A nation of millions have been reduced to a remnant. 2,000 miles away, the king of Persia still ruled over them. The Ark of the Covenant had been lost, yet they built and they sang. I believe our call is similar. Here we are in this brick-and-mortar place with coffee beside us and our phones, hopefully under our seats. Here we are in this place where disappointment and discouragement and very real sin is present. Here we are in this place where a great empire of power and prestige and wealth 
surrounds us and has set itself against the Lord and against his anointed. Yet we build and we sing. Our feet may be an apex, but our hands reach to Zion. We build the city of song here. How? Our text shows us. The city of song is built, one, in the shadow of empire, two, with walls, three, by faithful people, four, in obedience to God's word, five, empowered by the Spirit, six, for an audience of nations. They built and sang, we build and we sing. Let's pray. Father, empower us by your Holy Spirit to build the city of song here in this place. May this place be a place of worship to you, a place where Zion has, in fact, broken through into the normal daily life that we live. May your spirit be with us even now. Amen. The city of song is built in the shadow of empire. The shadow exists for Jerusalem in the form of opposition without and discouragement within. In chapter 12, when Jerusalem's cities were dedicated, Babylon still reigned supreme. Artaxerxes remained on his throne. One of my favorite parts in a book or a movie is when there's a, a part where there's bad guys um, doing something bad. Maybe they're, like, they're beating up on somebody who needs help. And kind of out of the shadows, there will come maybe, a, maybe a, a kid or an old decrepit man, and he'll say, hey, stop that bad thing that you bad people are doing. And then the bad guys will say, well, what are you going to do about it, old man? And then the old man throws off his cloak, and he's a ninja, and he, he beats him up. I love that part. And the Bible itself is actually full of things like that, of, of things being more than meets the eye. But that's not, I think, what is going on in Nehemiah 4. They really were in a weakened place. There really wasn't more than met the eye. Think back to chapter 4, when Sambala and, and Tobiah are sort of teasing the people building uh, the wall. And one of the things that Tobiah says is, um, he says, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, if this was that book or movie that I like so much, this would be the part where maybe Tobiah takes a big sledgehammer and knocks it against the wall, and the hammer breaks apart. And everyone realizes, wow. The wall is great, but I don't think that that's exactly what's going on here. Um, I don't think the Jews were under any illusions about the ultimate strength of their walls. If Persia had wanted them destroyed, it wasn't the walls that were going to save them. And if the world wants the church under its heel, it's not the Bill of Rights that's going to save us. They were vulnerable. We are vulnerable. This is why in, in Daniel's sermon from a week or two ago in chapter 9, they say, not overstating the matters, Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. Yet in the face of this vulnerability, they built and they sang. What about discouragement from within? What other shadows hang over the city of song? Well, the promise to Abraham was that he was to be a father of many nations not the runt of many nations. And God had promised that kings would come from him, not slaves. Yet here they are, a nation in decline, a kingdom past its prime, floundering in middle age with back problems and credit card debt. The golden age is gone. The queen of Sheba no longer visits you. 
It could even be argued that what had been achieved by Ezra and Nehemiah hadn't come from God or even from their own hard work, but had come embarrassingly from Artaxerxes. No doubt that was part of the taunts of what some of those local rivals were saying. Who even put Nehemiah in charge? Artaxerxes. Nehemiah didn't like storm the castle and take the crown. Artaxerxes put him in that place. Um, Who gave the materials and money to rebuild? Artaxerxes. In chapter 11, we even see that the, that the organization and payment of the temple staff was done by the king of Persia. The light of nations is on the dole, begging pagans for help. That could be a profound discouragement. Well, how do they respond? Even in the shadow of empire, they remained confident in God's continued relevance to their situation and his care over them. I said a minute ago that Jerusalem wasn't more than it actually appeared, um, and that they were very vulnerable to attack and reconquest. Well, that's both true and it's not true. From a physical point, it's true. The army of Israel was, isn't even mentioned in this text. Where is the army of Israel? We don't know, right? The walls of the city, maybe we're still weak. But here's what's, where it's not true, that it's, there was more than it looked like. Despite its very real weakness, Zion was breaking through. When you think about how, magnet, or how, um, how compasses work, where you take a compass out, and no matter where you are, it points due north. Maybe that way. Um, due north. All right? Well, there are, think, let's think metaphorically about how compasses work. Maybe let's think about different kinds of compasses. Maybe there's cultural compasses or educational compasses, or power compasses. Maybe when you take out your compass, the culture compass, it points to Hollywood or New York City. And your power compass points to Beijing or Silicon Valley. Well, the Jews in our text had a compass too, and it pointed to Babylon, its cultural center, its its education, its power, All of their compasses was pointing straight to Babylon, except one. There was one compass, the compass of God's delight and presence, mission and favor, the compass of the steadfast love of the Lord, and that compass pointed straight at Jerusalem, and that compass was all that mattered to them. Jerusalem appeared small and unimpressive from the outside because Jerusalem was small and impressive from the outside. But because the people of God and praise to God resided there, they understood that the reality was that they understood the reality that Jerusalem as Zion was the center and capital of the world. As C.S. Lewis writes in the last battle, some places are larger on the inside than they are on the outside. The Jerusalem of the exiles was one such place. This church is one such place. The generation of Nehemiah was a nation past its prime, yet a life of worship and faith remained for them the essential project of their lives. That might be true for some of us. A disastrous first marriage, a criminal record, or a string of dead-end jobs has lowered the ceiling on what you may ever be able to accomplish in life or ministry. Yet you should consider a life of faithful worship to be your choicest treasure nonetheless. Though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength which once in old days moved earth and heaven, 
that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Let's reframe Tennyson's great poem for our purposes. Your best days may be behind you. So what? Sing and build. Strive to accomplish the work of the Lord in the time that you have. Seek him while he may be found. Yield not to either the temptations of the flesh or the discouragements of life. Build the city of song even in the shadow of empire. The city of song in the shadow of empire is built with walls. This could be point. Let's get to, there we go. It's built with walls. Why? Because we are called to be separate and we are called to be watchful. At its most basic levels, the walls separate. There is an inside and an outside to the city of song. Who's in? Who's out? We see at the beginning of chapter 13 that there were very real consequences to this when the people read the law and then excluded the idol worshipers. And that separation, though, is not just an Old Testament reality. A kind of separation is commanded to us in the New Testament as well. Here's 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. What walls does our city of song have? How do we go out from the midst of the world around us and have no partnership with lawlessness, no fellowship with, dis- with darkness, no concourse with Belial, no portion with an unbeliever? This isn't your fundamentalist pastor from 40 years ago telling you this. This is the word of God. Be separate from the world, the Lord says. Touch no unclean thing. Building walls, though, isn't enough. The walls must be manned, too. We are to watch. Remember Isaiah 62, which I read at the beginning. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. Well, here we are, watchmen, up on the walls. Let's look to the epistles to receive our orders. Watch with vigorous, enduring love. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be in love. Second, watch yourself. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted, Galatians 6. Three, watch one another. Second John, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. Watch for the devil. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's First Peter. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, uh, John McLaughorn gave me a book called West with the Night, which is a memoir about this woman in the early 1900s who lived uh, in Africa. She was of European descent, but her family had a farm there. And she tells a story about being a little girl, and she's out uh, playing on the big farm, there, and one of the workers on the farm sees her kind of trot by doing what little girls do, and then the worker sees a lion coming, just start beginning, starting like chasing her down and tracking her. And this is what she records as an adult, as the, as the, the farm worker saying. She says, 
I see that you are running without much thought in your head. And the, let me read that again. I see that you are running without much thought in your head. And the lion is running behind you with many thoughts in his head. And I scream for everybody to come very fast. That is how the devil works in our life. We are going along with not very many thoughts in our head. And there's a lion, the devil, behind us with many thoughts in his head. And sometimes we don't see that, but one another does. So both we're being sober-minded and watching for the devil, but there's a part where the rest of us are saying, I see these two things, and, and I scream for help, right? All right, um, what's another instruction from the epistles? We watch for enemies within. Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Uh, we watch our doctrine. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Uh, one of the great um, benefits of our, of our fledgling denomination is what I hold here in my hands. The Trinity Fellowship Church's Confession of Faith. This is one of the walls around our city of song. This is one of the ways in which we obey 1 Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And it's not that long. I didn't even double-side this, this paper. Uh, and there's lots of chapters, but don't be overwhelmed. There's, there's uh, 35 chapters, but each chapter is like a page long, so don't be thrown by that. This is, a, this is part of the wall. This is one of the ways we watch one another. And then lastly, we watch under watching leaders. Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This watchfulness is a community activity. We remind one another of the boundaries of our city. We walk the walls together. Uh, here's an odd little historical practice that I learned about recently called beating the bounds. I think it could be instructive. I'm going to read this fast. It's not going to be on the screen, but just listen. Uh, this is from an article. Before the borders of England's parishes were definitively mapped, people learned the boundaries of their community by foot. Every year, a few days before the Feast of the Ascension, the members of each parish would come together to walk the edge of their common lands. We're talking about like 1400s, 1600s, 1700s here. The practice was called beating the bounds, like boundaries. And the purpose was to create a shared mental map of the parish to ensure that neighboring communities couldn't encroach on the land. They carried flags, sang songs, read homilies, and used slender willow branches to swap the landmarks that separated one parish from another. It was the responsibility of the older members of the community to remember the boundaries and the responsibility of the younger ones to learn them so that they could preserve, be preserved for another generation. Pain was used as an aid to memory, and the form of attack was, was determined by the landscape. If they came to a stream, the children's heads might be dunked in it. If the boundary ran against a wall, they might be encouraged to race along it so that they would fall into brambles on either side. If they came across a ditch, they might be encouraged to jump across it so they would slip in the mud. And when they came to a boundary stone, this is the best one, the children would be flipped upside down and had their heads knocked against the stone. <laughs> In some spots, though, more pleasant memories would be created by pausing for a glass of beer or a snack of bread and cheese. Finally, they would finish with a party on the village green. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good model for children's ministry, in a way, I would say. <laughs> um, I love this, though. The old vividly teaching the young the sacred boundaries and perilous borders of our ancient faith. 
the creation of a shared mental map of the pathways of our God. Regular snacks, occasional punishment. I can very much relate to having been taught and brought up in that manner. All right. Uh, the City of Song and the Shadow of Empires is built with walls by faithful people. Again, faithful people, not impressive people. Think about the leaders we have in this book. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are a different sort of hero than we sometimes see in the Bible. I have never met a man like Moses or Abraham or David or the Apostle Paul. But I have met people like Ezra and Nehemiah. Just simple, wise, faithful obedient, courageous men of God doing the thing that they were called to do. We want heroes so badly. We want platform personalities and famous Christians to represent us to the world or fight our battles for us. Sometimes God gifts us those leaders. Sometimes it happens. But that wasn't really the case in Nehemiah and Ezra's day, nor do I think it's the case in ours. We should be content and give thanks to God for the Ezra's and Nehemiah's in our midst. Who else? What other kind of faithful people build this wall? Well, the people. In addition to Ezra and Nehemiah, we have a long list of absolutely essential nobodies. Mike's sermon was great about this last week, talking about the Bic pens. I really liked that. Um, the book of Nehemiah is full of names that mean nothing to us. But let those names roll around in your mouth. They are tombs to unknown soldiers of the Lord, Stand-ins for the millions of normal, faithful Christians who have lived quiet lives of obedient praise to God for thousands of years. Those names are our names. Those names are our names, too. The Victorian novelist George Eliot concludes her masterpiece, Middlemarch, with this great, great line. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Our heroes are different. The faithful are anonymous, but they made personal sacrifices. Until now, we have largely neglected what actually was happening in Nehemiah 11. There are a lot of names. We just mentioned them. Why were they there, though? What did those people do? Chapter 11 lists all the families who agreed to leave their homes in the surrounding towns and villages and move into Jerusalem. And in chapter 12, we see that all of Israel, whether or not they were living in Jerusalem, were, had committed themselves to providing financially for the keepers of the temple. You may be thinking, Philip, I love God, I believe the gospel, I read my Bible, I teach my children, I worship sincerely. But whenever you worship leader types get up here and start talking about ecstatic, enthusiastic worship, you lose me because I'm a million miles away from that. And I want you to know I hear you on that. Maybe it's just your personality. Maybe it's not sin or anything. It's just your personality. Or maybe it's just a season that you're in where you're still deeply invested in, in the normal, beautiful life of the Christian but sort of these moments are just absent. And I want you to be encouraged by this section specifically. Earlier I described Nehemiah's generation as reaching toward the promise of Zion out of the ruins of Jerusalem. 
I described us as reaching for Zion with our feet still in apex. Hear this. The practical, sacrificial orientation of our lives around the things of God, around this church, is a crucial way in which we reach toward Zion. Just showing up, not just on Sunday mornings, but to the sort of optional things of church life, is how we pull a little bit of Zion down to apex. Writing checks is how we pull a little bit of Zion down to apex. Signing up for meals or for hospitality or service projects is how the city of song is built. Here's from Haggai, which again, this is a contemporary of what we're talking about here. He says, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build my house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. What else about the faithful people who built this city? In the same way that worship has spilled out of the temple into the streets, so the worship of God has spilled out from the priestly class to include all people, including women and children. Here's Nehemiah 12, 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. Among all the hundreds of things we want for our children, I believe this text instructs us as parents to expect, work, and pray for our children to be worshipers. And to expect, work, and and pray for them to rejoice in the Lord with great joy. And to expect, work, and pray for them for an age-appropriate yet sincere depth of feeling in their engagement with the things of God. My oldest is 15, my youngest is 4, there's some more in between. The age-appropriate thing is important here. Uh, we're not trying to load, you know, laden on to them more than their little hearts can take. But as age-appropriate, we should expect a seriousness of purpose about the things of God. We want our children to make the good confession, but we also want children who rejoice on the city, of, city walls. Would that we raise them to be Christians in whose veins the blood of Christ runs still warm, raw, feasting, bleeding, laughing Christians. When wild dogs are domesticated, their ears droop. Did you know that? If you tame a fox, after a while, those little pointy triangle ears, they, they droop down like a beagle's. May our children's souls never droop by being domesticated to the world's ways. For the pathways of God lie in untamed places and are made for an untamed people. People whose souls thirst for the living God and who des desire above all else to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Here's a sort of funny take on what I'm talking about. It's from a Flannery O'Connor novel. The old man had always impressed on him, the boy, the old man had always impressed on him his good fortune in not being sent to school. The Lord had seen fit to guarantee the purity of his upbringing, to preserve him from contamination, to preserve him as his elect servant, trained by a prophet for prophecy. 
while other children her age were herded together in a room to cut out paper pumpkins under the direction of a woman, he was left free for the pursuit of wisdom, the companions of his spirit, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Job, Abraham and Moses, King David and Solomon and all the prophets, from Elijah who escaped death to John whose severed head struck terror from a dish. Now the thing I love about this is not so much the jibes at paper pumpkins, but the high seriousness of purpose with which the old man raises the boys. Do we consider Enoch, Job, and Solomon the companions of their souls? Or are we content to let Spotify and Disney Plus do that? Worship is no less demanded of them than of you. Their worship is no less precious to God than yours. May we not be so fearful of hypocrisy that we simply, by fearing the danger of failing to practice what we preach, that we fail to preach what, in fact, we practice. Let's take our children's worship seriously and impress on them this truth that God wants their hearts, all of it. May they give it to him and see if he doesn't fill it beyond all hope. The people, these ordinary people, these faithful people served in ordinary days. Scattered around our text, we have various references to the ordinary days of worship. It's important to remember that while worship does include feast days and high holy days, those days are the exceptions. 11.23 says, There was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. 12.24, They stood to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. In all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. Compare the preparation of a wedding to the preparation of a marriage. For a wedding, all your efforts are given so that one single day goes off perfectly. And then you go home and you collapse and get the rice out of your hair. To prepare for a marriage, though, you are carefully planning not just for one day, but for years, for a lifetime where you're going to live, how you're going to make money, how you're going to raise your kids. The consecration of the walls in chapter 12 has both elements of the wedding and the marriage. We focused a lot this morning on the wedding features, the dancing on the city walls part. But let's not overlook the long-haul preparation that's involved here too. Church isn't one perfectly executed wedding party. It's a marriage. There are 52 Sundays a year, 26 home group meetings a year, 26 youth group meetings a year, prayer meetings, men's meetings, women's meetings, service projects, discipleship classes, and untold numbers of meal trains, acts of mercy, and hospitality occurring. These are ordinary days mostly, yet they require care, endurance, consideration, and diligent work to execute faithfully. Here's a quote. If a man has any greatness in him, it comes to light not in one flamboyant hour, but in the ledger of his daily work. Same is true of worship. If a man, woman, or child has any great love for God, it comes to light, not in one flamboyant worship service, but in the ledger of weekly work and worship in the city of song. The city of song and the shadow of empire is built with walls by faithful people in obedience to the word. Specifically, it is obeyed in the fact that they worshipped according to David's law and they lived according to Moses' law. 
First, let's talk about worship. In two different places in these chapters, there are references to the manner of worship under King David. In 1236, we are told that the instruments were used, that were used were the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And in verses 45 and 6, we are told that the people of God performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And this isn't just in Nehemiah where this sort of thing happens. This happens often in Israel's history. In great moments of reformation and revival, the ways of worship, the laws of worship, looking back to, to how Moses worshipped and how David worshipped are always being recalled and being reformed. Reformation in the middle of revival. Those things are not in competition with each other. They often hand in hand. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but... Um, with music groups, with, especially like with rock bands, there's a certain um, arc to their career. They start out young and scrappy, and like their, their first album photo will probably be like them on railroad tracks or something. And then they get really popular. They actually learn how to play their instruments. Um, the production level goes up. Maybe they have some ill-advised cr- crossover projects they do with pop stars. And then the backlash happens, right? They're like, oh, they sold out. They're not, I like their early albums. And then what do they do? They go back to their roots. That's like 15 years later. They go back and have another photo album or another album cover on the train tracks again, going back to their roots. Sort of what's happening here, right? It's not a perfect analogy, but things like this happen. In Joshua 8, Joshua refers to worshiping like Moses. First Chronicles 15, again, um, David references, David himself is referencing worshiping like Moses. Second Chronicles 29 um, Hezekiah refers to worshiping like David and Gad and Nathan. Um, and in Ezra, we see, again, worshiping like Moses. And in Ezra, again, like David. They're going back to their roots. Except in this case, it's not a stylistic correction to excess. It's recovery and recommitment to God's commands that invariably result in God's blessing on his people. The Israelites worshiped according to the word. We, we worship according to the word. The theological term for this is the regulative principle. Here's what our confession of faith says. Behold, the confession of faith. All right. This is chapter 24.1. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by him alone and is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So again, we worship according to the word. We also live according to Moses. This is chapter 13, 1 through 3. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. I won't spend a lot of time on this section. I think it needs to be mentioned because um, of just what's in the text. But in our series, we've touched on this issue a few times uh, already. I just want to make one point that usually obedience is a matter of knowing. Or I'm sorry, it's not a matter of knowing what's right. It's just a matter of doing what's right. But this section also reminds us there's a time when sometimes you're reading your Bible and you actually discover that something that your conscience had never even been bothering you about, turns out that that's actually not the way God wants it done. So our conscience, while very important, 
is not the ultimate arbiter of how we live our life. The, 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 word, the word of God is. And I think that's the situation that was, that was here. They may have simply not known or forgotten what they were supposed to do. Also, we're getting ready to um, begin our sermon series on 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a wild and woolly book. There are things in there about divorce and spiritual gifts and church discipline. And we should be prepared not just to do the things we know we're supposed to do, but also be willing to be taught to do things that we didn't even know we were supposed to do. So we receive the word of God from 1 Corinthians with, with thanksgiving and submission. All right. The city of song and the shadow of empire is built with walls by faithful people in obedience to the word, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. I said earlier that the worship services that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah are intentionally modeled on those we see in Exodus at the consecration of the Mosaic Tabernacle and with Solomon's temple. The people gathered, worship was performed, and then what? Well, in both places, the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory and presence of God descended over the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. But what do we see in Ezra and Nehemiah? temple was completed, the people gathered, worship was performed, and then nothing. No cloud of glory, no fire from heaven, no Shekinah glory. What must that have been like for the people of God? How might they have responded? Would they, with maybe a crisis of faith? Would they have doubted all the old stories they had heard? There was never any cloud, never any fire from heaven. It was all a fairy tale be one response. Maybe another was simply despair, not doubting the old days, but assuming that their day, their generation had been abandoned, not simply disciplined by God. Young people, maybe you struggle with disbelief either in the Bible itself or in the testimony of your parents or grandparents. Older people, maybe you struggle with discouragement you attend the same kind of church you used to, read the same Bible, pray the same prayers, sing the same songs, but you feel that something has changed, something is less than it once was. Are your remaining decades destined to be spent longing for earlier days? They are not. I believe that the testimony of the Holy Spirit's work in these books, and specifically these chapters, has something to teach both groups. First, there's evidence in Ezra and Nehemiah and in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that the presence of God and empowering of his spirit had not abandoned them. Was he there? Was he present in a different way? Yes. A less way, perhaps. But gone? No. Let's look at two verses, one from Haggai and one from Zechariah. Here's Haggai. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Or this from Zechariah. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, my preference is for all three of those. Power, might, and spirit. That's what I want. And sometimes God gives us all three of those things. But not necessarily. Not in Nehemiah's day. Perhaps not in our day either, but his spirit remains with us. How does it remain with us? All right? Let's think about the supernatural events that happen in these books that we encounter in Ezra and Nehemiah. Do we see avenging angels wiping out the Persian army? No. Do we see the seas being parted, lepers being healed, water turned into wine, 
no, no, no. You don't see any of that. God was at work in a thousand different ways, but not really the ways we think of in Scripture. Sometimes when we think about Scripture, we think it's just full of those sort of really dramatic miracles, but not here. It's happening in subtler ways. Unbelieving rulers are inexplicably allowing for ministry to occur. Funding is coming from bizarre and unlooked-for places. Rivalry and opposition is dissipating in the face of diligent faithfulness. Human hearts are being shaped and inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Word is speaking and convicting. The miracles that occur in these books, in other words, are the miracles that occur in our lives, too. But I want to highlight particularly the way in which the Spirit is present in His Word. Nehemiah 9, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Verse 30 in that same chapter, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. In Zechariah 7, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the word that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit. We can learn something from this. We all go through spiritual dry spells. Maybe last year was a really sweet time of prayer and abiding in the Lord, and this year it's not. Press in to his word. Cherish it. Relish it. Cling to it. He is speaking to us there. The Spirit is present also for us to obey. He is present through his word, but for what end? To obey with joy. First, obedience. Now, we just saw how obedience to the word in worship and in life is an essential component to building the city of song. But here's the problem. Without the Holy Spirit, it's impossible to do it. Sure, maybe for a few months or for a year, with enough peer pressure, reward structures in place, fear of man, you can kind of hold it together. All right? Hippie communes are great for about six months. All right? But I'm not talking about a hippie commune. I'm talking about a church in the suburbs with me for a long time. And that is a very difficult thing. That is something that requires a miracle. That's a supernatural event, okay? We just saw a minute ago in Haggai the call, the command to build the house of the Lord, to forsake your paneled homes, your hobbies, and to dedicate your lives to the Lord. That's the command. How is it done? They wrote, this is Ezra 1.5, then rose up the heads of the fathers, skipping down a little bit, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house. See the connection? Haggai prophesies the command via the spirit, and then the spirit gives them the ability to obey. Recall this great line from John Bunyan, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. All right, he is, the Spirit is present for us to obey with joy. All right, God had made them rejoice with great joy, Nehemiah 12, 43. Brad did a great job teaching us a couple weeks ago on how joy fits into our worship. And because time is running short, I'll just refer you to Brad's previous work on that matter. I will say, though, let's just note that God made them rejoice. I think that means that His Spirit gave them the ability to rejoice and have joy, which I think should affect our prayers. We shouldn't just pray for circumstances that are joyful. We should pray for joy in any circumstance. It's fine to pray for changed circumstances, but man, let's just pray for 
joy no matter what. Because I think actually that's a work of the Spirit in this section. There could have been people on that wall very discouraged about the present situation, but that's not recorded because the Spirit had given them joy. All right. The city of song and the shadow of empire is built with walls by faithful people in obedience to the word, empowered by the spirit for an audience of nations. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The singing was heard far away. I want to address those who are here this morning and who hear the rejoicing in this place and yet are far off. Not physically, but spiritually. You're here in this place, but your heart and soul are a million miles away. To you, I would say, the song that emanates from the church of God and from his word, from the ordinary lives of his people, is an invitation. I'm going to read a famous part from Ephesians 2, but I'm going to change the, um, the, the, the tense of when these events happen a little bit. So I want this to land on you in the present tense. Remember that you are at this time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, we'll call that the city of song, and a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off are invited to come near by the blood of Christ. So come, hear the song, come and rejoice. Be near, you who are far off. So that is how the city of song is built. We've taken it apart. We've put it back together again. One of the intentions of this sermon has been to highlight the many similarities between our time and Nehemiah's. But I want to conclude by noting a significant difference. Even though it is clear that God was present with his people through his word and spirit, Something had been irretrievably lost, too. Specifically, the Ark of the Covenant and the corresponding cloud of glory that had accompanied the placing of the Ark within the temple by Solomon and that had accompanied the placing of the Ark within the tent of meeting by Moses. In Exodus 25, remember this, God had commanded Moses to construct the Ark as the special place of his habitation with his people. It was made of wood, overlaid with gold, and contained the tablets of the law, Aaron's budding staff, and a bowl of manna. On top of the ark, between engraved cherubim with outstretched wings, was the mercy seat, where the blood of the lamb was sprinkled once a year to atone for the sins of the people. It was from above the mercy seat that God had chosen to speak to Moses. To touch it was death. To lose it was worse than death, and they had lost it. Their greatest treasure, the tangible place of Yahweh's sublime and terrible presence, where perfect righteousness in the form of the tablets of the law was covered by mercy in the form of the propitiating, sacrificial, atoning blood. Jeremiah had prophesied that there would come a time when the Ark of the Covenant would no longer come to mind or be remembered or missed but I do not believe that Ezra and Nehemiah's generation was that time. I believe that in those days, it did come to mind. I believe they wept for it. 
not in some sort of weird, superstitious, totemistic way, where if they could just find the ark, all their trouble would go away. The avenging angel would come and take care of all their problems. I simply mean that in the Old Testament, God had chosen to be present in a special way through the ark. And at times of great sin, the loss of the ark was one way in which God chose to discipline his people. I believe this is the case in Ezra and Nehemiah's day because it had happened once before. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 4 about the time not when the Persians took the ark, but when the Philistines had captured it. This was in the generations before David. Now Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband was dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. What she said was true. Glory had departed from Israel. And it was not until David recovers the ark from the Philistines years later that it would return again. That's why the, the, the celebration processional into Jerusalem with the ark was such a big deal. That was the moment when that, when that happened. The glory was gone for a time. For a hundred years, Eli's daughter-in-law had prophesied rightly. The glory had departed. When Jerusalem was sacked and the Israelites exiled to Babylon, 400 years later, the ark was lost again, and this time it was never recovered. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah take place, in a sense, in a period similar to the dark time that Israel had before. Yes, God's presence was present, yet a great gaping hole was felt. We have rightly celebrated the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra, but here's something to consider. Without the ark, the Holy of Holies... And Ezra's rebuilt temple may have simply been an empty room, a place no longer meeting with God, but of waiting for God. How long they waited. The absence of the Shekinah glory, the absence of a dramatic revelation of God's presence at the consecration of the rebuilt temple indicates a qualitative difference in how God chose to dwell and reveal himself to his people after the exile. Like a marriage after infidelity, the return to the way things once were is long and painful. The generation of Ezra and Nehemiah died, and another rose up, and then another. Century followed century. A remnant was preserved. The worship of God continued. His spirit continued to speak through his word. But was God ever in their midst as he had once been? During those long years, I wonder if they ever thought, if only the Ark of the Covenant had not been lost, things would be different. If such a thing could be restored, would God perhaps again dwell in their midst? Would the Shekinah glory return? Would fire and the cloud again descend upon the city of song and consecrate the people's praise? John, you can bring the team up. The women attending the birth of Eli's grandson told that tragic mother, Do not be afraid. For you have borne a son. But there was no peace in that birth, only fear. There was no life at that birth, only death. 
There was no glory at that birth, only darkness. The ark had been lost, the glory had departed. It would take another birth, another son, for the ark to return. It would take another birth, another son, for the glory to shine again. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. For the ark has not been found, it has been born. The tablets of the law kept in the ark, in Christ, perfectly embodied and fulfilled. The bowl of manna in the ark in Christ, the bread of life, perfectly embodied and fulfilled. Aaron's budding staff in the ark in Christ, the true and perpetual priesthood, perfectly embodied and fulfilled. The blood on the mercy seat in Christ, perfectly embodied and fulfilled. And the cherubim, no longer engraved in gold, but real and awesome, hovering, brooding, singing over a mercy seat of fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, repeating the sounding joy, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Beloved, take great hope and confidence from this, that God in Christ dwells with us and will never forsake us. He has become flesh and tabernacled among us. We have beheld his glory. He is our temple. He is our defense. The city of song no longer in the shadow of empire, but in the light of his glory forever. Amen. Amen. Sing and worship. (laughs) 